This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Race, My Story and Humanity's Bottom Line, more than a book, it's an experience. And the author is Lauren Josen Nile. And Lauren joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lauren. Hello, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. This book, very comprehensive view of racism, and you have lived it, and you have survived it, and you have prospered in spite of it, and we're going to hear more about that. But as you put it, it's the amazing oneness of humanity. That's what you want to point out, and the possibility of a human future in which understanding and compassion are the norm and racism is nothing more than a dim memory of a distant past. What a great goal. And I think most of us in this world would agree with you. Unfortunately, there, I guess there will always be racists among us because they just don't understand, do, do they? Well, Steve, you know, I do believe that we all have the potential to understand. I think that when uh, people don't understand and they behave and speak and, and raise ways that are uh, one might consider to be racist or at least insensitive, I think that what's really going on is that they themselves are not in touch with their own humanity fully. Mm -hmm. uh, because if they were, they could not think of, speak to, nor could they treat people in ways that are disrespectful based on their race. Well, so, you know, my, my hope is that at some point, we will get to a future in which racism really is a thing of the past. I won't live to see it, and you probably won't either, but, but that's my hope. Well, that is a great hope, and your book, as you put it, is kind of a racism 101 for the masses, and you'll help <laughs> us better understand what that's about. But before we get into all the details, give us a little bit about your professional background, and and also then take us back when you were, I guess your memory goes back of some very disturbing experiences as a young girl. Sure. Uh, well, I am, uh, by training, I'm actually uh, an attorney. I, I did go to law school, finish practice law for several years, but I uh, really had a desire to teach, to, to try to uplift humanity's awareness, to, to raise our, our consciousness, if you will, um, along a number of different lines in a, in a number of different areas. And so after several years of practicing law, I decided, you know what, I really do want to speak. I want to write. I want to teach. I have this passion for, for helping humanity really reach our ultimate potential. So I was fortunate enough to find my way into the field of uh, speaking and training. And so for the last 24 years, actually, I've been doing workshops and seminars uh, for all kinds of organizations, nonprofits, educational, uh, governmental institutions, um, all the way from the White House to very small uh, local government organizations, 
um, and also uh, corporations and small businesses. So I've done a variety of training in numerous areas from conflict resolution to effective communication to diversity awareness in the workplace, you know, how to respond to and prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, you name it, and I've pretty much trained in it. Um, and I love what I do because my goal is to help all of us as, as human beings uh, reach our personal best um, by being self-aware and aware of others. So that's what I do, and I love it. Well, your book starts out with a compelling account of your personal experiences growing up. Give us a little, you know, a little insight in what you went through. Sure. Um, snapshot version. I was born in 1953 in New Orleans, uh, and this was uh, roughly uh, 10 or 11 years before the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed, uh, which, of course, among other things, uh, did away with discrimination and public accommodations. So for the first 10 years of my life, for the first nearly 11 years, really, um, I grew up with the white-only signs everywhere. Uh, I couldn't drink from the same rest from the same water fountains as uh, white kids and their parents. I couldn't eat at the same restaurants that they ate at with their parents. Couldn't go to the amusement parks. Couldn't do much of anything, really, in New Orleans. Everything was always separate, but never was it equal. The law required separate but equal accommodations. They were never equal. So um, until I was in junior high school, um, I remember very clearly what it was like to see the white-only signs and to be thought of, regarded as, and treated as literally a second-class citizen. It really was the American version of South Africa's apartheid. That's what I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Well, you make some strong, strong statements in here, some strong themes. In fact, you devote an entire chapter to establishing that the first human beings were African. Why do you think that fact is so important for people to know? Well, I think that when people understand that we really truly are one human family, that that, at least I hope, um, that it will go a long way toward undoing some of the unconscious bias um, that we human beings have toward each other. First of all, I don't think that many people know that information. I don't think that people, many of us, realize that we really are, uh, as a species, uh, we were born in, in Africa. Um, and also, I believe that for many of us who are aware of that information, there is an unconscious belief that even though we started off in the African continent, I think that for many people who are aware of that information, they may believe that from Africa, from Africans, there was a gradual evolution up uh, to, you know, Asians and Middle Easterners uh, and uh, people from India, uh, all the way up to Europeans, who subconsciously, I think, many people believe are at the apex, if you will, of human evolution. What I want is for people to understand, one, that we really are all truly African in our DNA, in our genes, the science is in and the doubt is out. There's no question about that anymore. And first, also understand that there was no evolution up from Africans. Instead, there was an adaptation out from Africans. Fully formed African human beings left Africa, oh, 180,000 years ago or so, uh, walked literally to the four corners of the earth, and over about 2,000 generations, slowly and physically adapted to their new environment so that they could survive in their new environment. So there was no evolution up from Africans. There was instead an adaptation out from Africans. And 
those African human beings slowly became the modern-day Europeans and Asians and uh, Native Americans, etc. So we are all really very closely related. And I, when I think about that, when I think about the fact that we are one human family, I, I just find that to be a beautiful, astounding truth. And I just want to share it with as many people as possible. Now, there's the issue that you address, and you call it unearned privilege. Uh, those words can be very contentious, as you point out. Uh, there are some who believe that they've worked really hard, what they have, and, and they resent anyone telling them that they didn't, you know, uh, they didn't earn it be, because they're white. That's, uh, so it's, uh, how do you address that? How do you answer that? Well, the first thing I try to do, Steve, is I try to really be respectful of everyone um, and, and their experiences. You know, all of us have, have experienced some kind of pain in our lives, and it's painful to have someone say to you or imply, you haven't worked for what you got, you only got it because of your race, because you're white. I would never say that to anyone. Um, but what I would try to do is help them to understand that um, just as they worked hard for what they had, it's helpful for them to realize that many people worked just as hard and sometimes harder really than they did and didn't get half as far because of um, racism so for example when I talk about unearned privilege I'm talking about a privilege that one gets simply because of one's in this instance it's one's race but there's privilege based on gender and based on sexual orientation and class and, and other things but you know I talk I talk about for example the fact that as Peggy McIntosh said in her well-known article on white privilege, she says, you know, these are some of the things that I get just because I'm white that I don't even ask for. Um, you know, if I should try to move, I can be pretty sure of renting a place where I want to live in a neighborhood that I want to live in, and when I get there, I can be pretty sure that my neighbors are going to welcome me there. You know, I just, she says, I just take this for granted. She says, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I won't be followed or harassed. She says, I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer people's letters, and I won't have people attribute these choices to the bad morals or the illiteracy of my race. I'm, a, I'm an individual, you know, and, and that's an unearned privilege. Robert Jensen, who used to write for the uh, Baltimore Sun, perhaps he still does, he said, look, one of the major white privileges that I have is that I don't look threatening. When I go to apply for an apartment or apply to school or for a job, almost all the people evaluating me look like me, he says. I don't look dangerous to them, you know? And so that, just that privilege alone, being seen and treated and responded to as an individual, not as a member of a group, is a huge privilege that most people who have it, based on their race, didn't earn. They just happen to be born into their race. It's not their fault. It's not to guilt anyone because... You know, I know that guilt isn't helpful, but it is to say that there is a responsibility to understand that unearned privilege um, and to, you know, uh, try to the extent that one can with one's individual life to not collude with it. You've already shared a few of your personal experiences with racism. Uh, you refer in the book, you call them the daily indignities. Now, yeah. you know, what do you want us to know about the daily indignities well uh, gosh the daily indignities of race Steve are sort of like the flip side of, of unearned privilege um, they're you know for example what we call shopping while black or driving while black it's uh, being responded to in many situations 
uh, I'm going to say specifically by European Americans, although it isn't only European Americans for sure, uh, with a kind of personal discomfort um, that you just intuitively feel is, is based on your race. And I know about this because oftentimes when I'm on the phone, um, the reaction that I have, the response that I have is, uh, oh gosh, it has a kind of comfort and pleasantness and lightness that winds up being very different when I wind up later meeting the person. It's almost as if I'm getting what I refer to as that, oh, oh, hi, hi, black person response. Hmm. And it isn't that they're not it isn't that they're not nice to me after that or not courteous to me, but there is a certain lack of comfort, personal comfort, um, that you feel, uh, as if the person's a little bit on guard. Um, I'll just tell you very quickly, I, in one of my workshops that I did years ago for a big Florida supermarket chain, a young African-American man said to me, I was on my way to work this morning, and the guy in front of me at the 7-Eleven, I stopped to get some coffee in. The guy in front of me went off on the cashier and really started yelling at her. I, I think there might have been some mental illness there. He said he, the guy was also black. He said, and then I was next in line, and I walk up to the cashier, and the look on her face was, oh, my God, here comes another one. Mm. He said, I didn't know that guy from Adam. If I had been mm -hmm. a white guy, she probably would have said to me, what was his problem? Right. And so, you yeah. know, he said, gosh, just being always responded to not as an individual but as a as as an entity, a member of a group, mm -hmm. that that really sort of capsulates what we're talking about when we talk about the un, the uh, daily indignities. And I think it's important for people to know about them, you know, so that hopefully they can grow in understanding and compassion when people talk about them. You also addressed what you say are the psychologically impacted European Americans. Uh, you don't think most European Americans think a lot about it, but. Uh, racism has impacted white America, and they ought to be aware of it. Sure, I agree. I, I believe that for, you know, millions and millions of European Americans who are truly good people, who, you know, don't have a single conscious racist thought in, in their minds about any group, you know, people who really treat all people respectfully and who would never intentionally engage in behavior, you know, that's biased in any way, I think that even for those people, unconscious racism, almost like a thief in the night, Steve, has stolen their ability to experience, you know, themselves as equals with other people, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and others. I, I think that even for those folks, there, many of those folks, there is still an unconscious belief in one's superiority and the superiority of one's group. And when one lives one's life from that perspective, I think um, that they lose out. A person with that kind of thinking loses out on a lot of what it means to truly see the oneness of humanity and to really, you know, regard all people equally, which is uh, a tragedy, I think. It, it really limits one's life in significant ways. We all know that saying that if you really want to understand somebody else, you have to walk a mile in their shoes. In your chapter, you call it Inverse Realities, Walking in Another's Moccasins, talking about European Americans and African Americans changing places. <laughs> that's really, that's yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I'll just say that my hope in doing that was that, and I know that it would be really uncomfortable for some uh, European Americans to read that chapter, but my hope is that, you know, in reading that chapter, in reading the words that 
uh, people will get in touch with the psychological and emotional pain of living that reality. In other words, of living in a society in which, you know, the very kinds of thoughts and assumptions and the, the very history that I talk about with respect to European Americans actually does exist for their group. The history of enslavement, the history of 100 years of discrimination and lynching following enslavement, and all of the things that African Americans have gone through. I hope that in putting European Americans in that place in this chapter, that people really get it, because it's in my, uh, in my view, it's in that way that compassion coming from deep understanding has the possibility to really rise. We finally have an African-American president. Uh, do you think we've really made progress, or do we still have to climb a big mountain? <laughs> I think we've made tremendous progress, Steve. This is not the country into which I was born, not at all. We, my parents and grandparents could not dream of the life that I've led uh, throughout my adult life. So, yes, we've made tremendous progress. And I agree the election of President Obama is one indication of that. Even having said that, however, I think we still have quite a long way to go because we've made tremendous progress in terms of discrimination, but now we have to pick up the mantle of, of uh, eradicating prejudice, prejudging, eradicating unconscious bias, eradicating latent uh, feelings of inferiority or superiority. It's on the psychological front now that we have to wage the next battle, and that's where we still have much work to do. We've been listening to Lauren Josen Nile. She's the author of her book, Race, My Story and Humanity's Bottom Line. More than a book, it's an experience. Lauren, tell us how we can get your book. Sure. Thank you, Steve. The book's available on Amazon.com. It's available on BarnesandNoble.com. And, of course, it's available from my publisher, iUniverse.com. Uh, um, so uh, do... Uh, get a copy if, if you find anything that I've said interesting. And uh, I am very pleased to announce that I just got a wonderful review from uh, one of my industry, one of the industry uh, reviewers, and that is Clarion. So uh, I'm happy with that as well. Well, congratulations, and thank you for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, this book of poetry, The Dragon in the Room, and the author, the poet, if you will, is J.K.E. Rose, and Jackie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jackie. 
Hi. Great to have you with us. This is going to be an interesting discussion about love like a dragon in the room. So we will find out about what that's all about, where that came from. Obviously, you know, dragons can wake and terrify or seduce. They're powerful, swift, slow, cumbersome. A dragon can destroy or protect. You say it's just like love, right? Yeah, it is. All the good and all the powerful bad. It's there. It it's just there. depends on what kind of dragon you end up with. Okay, well, we'll find out more about your feelings, your passions. You'll share some poetry with us. But first, we've got to know a little bit about you, your background, and you know how you became a poet and how this book came together. Okay, well... The um, the poetry just sort of came. It came because I had spent, I've been married twice, still married, um, one of those complicated, difficult marriages that seemed to go on forever, and um, I had a hard time figuring out why it was so difficult and so complicated and and trying to find the words to express how I felt and trying to communicate how badly and deeply hurt I was. And because I had been a writer for television for years and had grown up with books and, and telling stories because that's what our lives basically are, just a collection of stories. And our families are just characters and stories and how all their stories mesh with our stories. Um, I found myself just basically just writing these poems down and literally not really having to think too much because the words just came out of me. Kind of, you know, when you're wounded and you bleed, there were the words instead of blood on the paper. And they helped. They helped clarify a lot. And the book is probably written over the decade. And it really helped me. It really helped me to figure out how I felt and what I really wanted as opposed to what I thought I wanted. Well, a lot of people maybe don't know what they want out of love. There's a, obviously, uh, we get literally thrown into, into these relationships through attraction and through commonalities or differences or whatever, you know, is, is right for that moment between two people. I like what you say here. The words look like poetry, but poems are just the best words using the smallest space, easy to read and easy to remember. Yeah. Think about, think about all the, the really great things that people say to themselves. Um, prayers are just short words. I mean, the most important words that people can say. And um, prayers and blessings and even curses and chants and everything else. They're just usually, and why, why do you think like witches and witches spells? Like they're just always small words that have great power. And if people say the most powerful phrase in the world is I love you, well, that's only three words. And how can you improve on that? You can't, not really. So it's always just about finding the best, fewest words and not obscuring what you're really trying to say or feel. So if a woman 
who's lost in marriage, read your book of poetry. She will know she's not alone. That was the idea. That was the idea. And if a man were to read the book of poetry, it's, you know, it's that old cliche about what do women really want. And, well, really, I think what women want is not really hugely different from what men want, but the communication process gets really skewed a lot. And once again, it's like the fewest words will make the strongest impact. So I think that my original tagline for this back um, before I came up with maybe, you know, my, my daughter actually said, Mom, that sounds funny, and your book's not that funny. And I'm like, this book is for every woman who's ever you know, contemplated homicide on her wedding anniversary and for the husband who thought that she was happy. <laughs> but um, I decided, no, that's probably not a good way to go. Um, but it is. If, if, if a woman reads the book, I don't want her to feel alone anymore. But if a man reads the book, I want the man to say, my gosh, you know, does she really feel like this? And actually ask, how do you feel? Which is the big thing. One of my friends read a lot of the poetry to her husband, and her husband said, do you feel like that about me? And he was really upset. <laughs> and she just said, sometimes, sometimes, yes, just so you know, sometimes I do. And then they had a good conversation. So. Well, it sounds like it's time to hear one or two of your poems. Did you have a preference? Not really. Not really. What what's what are those that just vibrate within you, you know, that stir within you? Well, there is probably a lot of them, but if I needed to read one right now. Okay, this one's called I did a serve a collected them under dragon titles and this one I call Dragon Bitter You are the enemy Slayer of smiles, thief of laughter, murderer Faces freeze when you walk through, hearts beat, stop halt, strive Breath catches, love falters, you trail fear like tattered feathers We hate you, your scratching fingers, your strangling grasp We make you angry, you don't know why we laugh or even why we flee Murderer, You torch your love out of us. Never enough you may ever plead. Then choke the moment. We suffocate, we bleed. No matter, we still live and scurry round the corners to savor love. We are one. You are alone. You say you are the power, the one who has to say we are supposed to tremble. We wish you'd go away. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be your prey. We don't want you with us. You are love gone far astray. Mm, my goodness, that is uh, um, that creates uh, feelings that most men would say, "How could I possibly ever, ever do that to the woman I love?" Because it usually happens in an unthinking way. Because people pretend that they are doing things for the best or for the common good or the greater good or whatever and they don't think they get in a habit and then when things go bad they just pretend it's okay but you know what pretending is no way to live because I mean everybody tells lies 
you have to tell lies that's how stories grow most lies are you know stories they're embroidered they're embossed they grow and there's a lot of truth and a lot of lies attached to them and nothing wrong with that what's wrong is when you start to believe the lies and you miss the kernel of truth and then that's when you get into pretending and when you're in a bad place and you don't feel like you can do anything about it because you're powerless you pretend and the more you pretend the more you lie to yourself the worse you feel and the worse you feel the more you pretend and the more you lie to yourself and eventually the only way you get out of that is just to find what's really absolutely true just for you and it may not be true for anybody else and it might not be true for your significant other usually the the significant other is totally oblivious because that's the lie they tell themselves that everything is good and then they're always shocked. You always hear about, you know, these marriages that blow up after 25 years, and, and one or the other spouse says, well, I thought they were happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, thought we, I thought we were great. How could they do this? How could he do this? How could she do this? But no one was paying attention. Everybody was playing let's pretend, and everybody was just lying to themselves. And, and eventually, it all falls apart. But it doesn't have to. <laughs> it's, the, it's the upside. The whole purpose of this book is to, sh- is to sort of say, you know, it doesn't have to. You can be strong, strong like a dragon. You can protect like a dragon. You can be fierce in your protection of what's important to you. And that's really also really important because lots of people lose sight of what's important to them and they get very involved in all kinds of extraneous distractions and they lose the truth of what's really important in their life. And that sounds trite, but it happens all the time. I mean, we, everybody lives busy lives and you can busy yourself right to the grave and never really pay attention to anything. But... Um, so when I think about this book, I actually, although it's kind of dark in some ways, to me, it's dark with a silver lining, because all you have to do is acknowledge the dark, because the dark is everywhere. It is. I mean, everybody's got problems, and everybody's got baggage. Everybody's got that. Sure. But if you've got the truth, and you protect it, and you look after it, then you're going to be fine. And doubtless, you're going to suffer and bleed and fall down and wish you hadn't been loved and wish you hadn't said this and wish that that happened, hadn't happened over there. But then you're going to stand back up again and keep going because you're going to figure you can handle it because the truth of your relationships is that you still love that person. And no matter what your kid, your kid does, you still love your kid and you're still going to keep going no matter what. And to me, that's a really hopeful thing. Does that make sense? So, to you? can you give us uh, hope through a poem that that is close to your heart? Um, uh, yeah, I guess I can. <laughs> okay. To kind of balance this. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's let's move back from the edge. Okay. And uh, yep. hang on. They are in the book. I'm just trying to choose one because there's so many of these up poems. Okay? Well, good. Okay, so... Um, and once again, it's the whole dragon thing. Mm-hmm. You know, many metaphors here, but this, this one I call dragon-free. All right? So, 
if all the dragons in the world answered to my call, if they wound and bound themselves about my ankles and my doubts, I would some bit fear you. You scratch, you drag lazy claw, threaten sinew and tear soul. You make me steal my heart, freeze thought and joy away, and cower, even though I shine. I touch dragons, I fly. I tell myself, take flight. Then you rise, chimera, dark enough to swallow light. I touch my power, shiver, doubt recoil. I take comfort in familiar toil. It is the pain I know, how to deal, how to play, how to hide, how to stay. I weigh power, I balance prey. I gasp, I sigh, I silent pray. And then, with all in balance, all brinking at an end, all shattered glass, all rainbow-blooded, I jump, I fly, I dragon-flooded, my thoughts escape, my heart bursts beating, my wings are new, sticky, but completing. Okay, that was a positive one. <laughs> right, I'm just trying to come up with uh, some kind of a comment that is, uh, and you know, it's very masterfully done. Uh, it's, you know, that, that it just, I guess, I've been married over 40 years, you know, there's a lot of times when, when I've made the comment, why, why does it have to be this hard? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we both want the same thing, for the most part, I mean, there's some people who don't, I guess are totally selfish, but I think most people, they don't want to be totally selfish. They, they want to be able to give and, and receive and return. You know what? I have, um, that's exactly what you want. Not you, I mean, an right. individual wants, sure. right? Is here. How about this one? Okay. I'll read you one more. This is a short one, okay? And I think this is what everybody really, really wants. Um, I, this one I just called dragons. So, holding on to time, crossing that fine line, walking all alone, knowing past all doubt. Nobody has a body like yours. Nobody has a body like yours. Hold me close in sleep, reaching me so deep. We're holding on to time. Wrap your arms through mine, knowing past all doubt. You're mine. Hmm. Well, we want to be one in all different facets of the word one. We want to feel that because that's where love dwells in oneness. You want to be known. You want to be seen. You want to be you want to be valued mm -hmm. just for who you are and your your scars shine and make you part of who you are. And I think that the biggest thing is you don't want to be, I know I don't want to feel like I need to ask permission to be who I am, mm -hmm. and I'm trying really hard to overcome a need for approval of who I am. Um, I just want to be seen not perfect, because it doesn't exist, but um, I'll go with quirky. You're pretty quirky today. <laughs> 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 I'm fine with that. But it's mostly the sense that you are known and valued. Right. Valued. Probably the strongest word of all for a relationship. Well, we've been 
privileged to talk with Jackie Rose. Her book, The Dragon in the Room, You'll, it's titled uh, under her name, J.K.E. Rose. She goes by Jackie. And Jackie, tell us how to get your book. Um, it is available both for order and download through Amazon and Google and Chapters Indigo in Canada and Barnes and Noble. So you can either order a hard copy or download an ebook. And um, obviously, I think that people will enjoy reading this. <laughs> I hope they do. Because for me, that was the thing to have a stranger take my book and read it and feel not alone. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. And you can find it under my name, J.K.E. Rose. Or look it also up, um, The Dragon in the Room. It's supposed to be launched any day now. The final touches are just being put on it. And um, that's, um, that's about it. Well, thank you, Jackie, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was lovely talking to you, too. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled... The Truth About Dog and Cat Treatments and Anomalies. I don't know what an anomaly is, but it must be something important. Our author is Dr. Robert L. Ridgway, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. That's quite all right. I'm happy to be here. This is an extensive read, 290 pages, but as a uh, pet owner or an owner of, well, actually, I guess I'm a pet parent. I guess that's the new way of describing it, being politically correct. I think that the pet owns me. Uh, this has some great information in it. I can reference certain things that are important and need to be addressed with my pet. Why did you decide after 42 years of practicing uh, medicine that you wanted to put this in book form? Well, uh, I've been working at a shelter for several years, and I, I see some of the worst cases you can imagine come into the shelter. And what I have found over the years that there are people who will not treat their pets, will not take it to the veterinarian because it costs money, and they just let the pet get worse and worse and worse, and finally when it gets to the point where of no return, 
they turn it into a shelter. Hmm. The other is I have acquaintances that have told me that they would be more than willing to take their pet to see their veterinarian if they had the money to do so, but they just cannot afford to do that. And third, I know that people who have pets have bought over-the-counter drugs and they don't know how much to give, how long to give it, what the dose should be, and so they, they give some and either they make their pet super sick or they kill it. So I thought if I could put something together to help people through the, the jungle of misinformation, lack of knowledge, uh, that type of thing, and, and try and put it in lay language so that they could understand what was being said, that I could help people uh, help them help their pets. And that's the reason for the book. No other reason. Now, doctor, you mentioned over-the-counter remedies. Are you referring to people medication or are you referring to pet medication? Well, you know what? Uh, they're one and the same. I know that surprises a lot of people, hmm. but many, many of the compounds that are used in human medicine are used in veterinary medicine. Um, and so um, what surprises me is that sometimes the form that we have in veterinary medicine is in a liquid form, but in human medicine, it's in a pill form. But, you know, it's the same same drug. I mean, we give you a, years ago, we had a drug called Suratol. The difference between the human drug and the veterinary drug was the color of the label. So, you know, we use the, the same kind of uh, compounds to treat different kinds of things. And so, I mean, it's kind of surprising that some people think, oh, gosh, you're using human, human drugs. But, you know, illness is illness. And uh, whatever, you can, whatever tool you can use to combat the illness is what we have to use. that makes sense? Yes, it does. Now, can pets... Uh, ingest, and are they okay taking pain meds, for example? They, they are if they're given the right pain med and uh, the right dose and for the, the, the right length of time. In my personal opinion, when you get to something like that, you should have the professional input of the pet's doctor telling you what to do with it because there's some uh, painkillers that... Uh, cause the uh, pet to become drugged, and then they'll start losing weight. And, and So you need to make darn sure what you're doing is correct. And if you go to your veterinarian, find out what, what he says, and then you go from there, then you're going to be all right. If you try to, what, what, what the, the, one of the problems we have is that limited knowledge can be very dangerous, and you can make mistakes. That's why in the book I try to describe what the syndrome is prior to suggesting a, pro, uh, uh, a potential treatment for the condition that exists. You have to know what it is you're treating and give the proper dose. And uh, there's no substitute for going to a professional veterinarian and having the pet treated there. But I know there are people who are never going to do that. That's the reason I wrote the book. Yes, and you mentioned limited knowledge being very dangerous, and I certainly agree with you. Uh, just ask any politician. <laughs> okay. And fleas, I, I live in the country. I do have a, a pet, and fleas and ticks are a major issue. Have yeah. you outlined any natural remedies, or are there other ways that you can treat a pet and keep them free of 
fleas and other uh, insects and pests? Well, you know, there's some really good over-the-counter drugs that can be purchased for that. Advantage 2 and Advantix 2 for dogs and cats, and they're very, very effective. While I was working at the shelter, I had a, an animal come in. I have never in my life, in the 42 years, seen a, an animal that had more fleas. We treated it with the Advantage, and about an hour later, while I went back to the cage, and the, the cage floor was black from fleas. So these, these compounds work. They do their job. And what I find when people say, I'm treating my dog with blah, 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 and it's not working. When was the last time you treated it? They can't answer the question. And the, the compound has to be used monthly, monthly. They cannot treat it once every quarter or once every six months and expect the dog to be, dog or cat, to be free of fleas. And while we're on the flea subject, many animals have skin conditions. And I always tell people before they spend money on skin conditions, make sure you have fleas under control because you can spend a ton of money wasted on skin conditions and it turns out to be nothing more than fleas. So there are products that you can buy over the counter that will treat fleas, and they are quite effective. I would suggest that you just follow directions on the, on the label of the compound that you buy at either Petco, PetSmart. Uh, you can buy them in military PXs, you know, all these kinds of, there are many places that sell these things. My wife, when we were building our house, we had a flea infestation, couldn't get rid of them, and she ended up putting dog collars around her ankles and wearing those. And uh, and one of the problems that my daughter discovered when they went shopping for school clothes for the coming year, my wife forgot to remove them. Just another one of those great events that you uh, try to achieve as a parent to embarrass your kids. Yeah, uh, I believe that. Yes. Um, uh, I haven't found that flea collars are very effective. I mean, there's some more modern products, and some people really swear by it, but I haven't found it to be very, very effective. I had a, we, we, I, I've been basically a, a surgeon for the last eight years, and this gal brought in her, her dog, and she said she was getting Benadryl and treating her dog because it was scratching all the time. And when we put the dog on the table to do surgery, the fleas were all over that poor dog. Wow. And she was treating with Benadryl. And what she needed to be doing was treating for fleas, you know. And so uh, what I find when I tell people sometimes, you know, it's a flea problem, they don't believe me. They get angry, actually angry, mad. And, you know, I, I told them what the problem is, but they don't believe it because they don't see the fleas. You don't have to see the fleas. And if you're in areas, I don't know, Texas and Florida are probably the two capitals of the world for fleas we get in florida we get rain and hot rain and hot rain and hot that is ideal for production of fleas mm. texas has an abundance of fleas because of the their climates and so uh, people in florida will tell me well i don't see any fleas but i can tell you they live in florida and if they're not treating for fleas they haven't and i can give you a story when we first moved to uh, for Florida, we uh, lived in an apartment 
and we didn't think we really needed to treat for fleas. That was wrong. I was shaving, and I was noticing there's some little blood drops on the sink as the cat was crawling up on the sink and watching me shave. And I looked at the cat, and it had it had fleas. And from that day on, we treat every month, and we have an indoor cat, and we treat every month for fleas to keep have flea control. Now, if you have a, a, a home that has a, a lot of fleas, there are flea traps, and they are really effective. And you, all you got to do is go to on my li- uh, online and type in my flea trap, and boom, it'll pop right up, and they really work. And I can give you a story about that. Where I work, there's a gal that was taking uh, pets home and getting them well so they could be adopted, and she said her house was just loaded with fleas, and she didn't know what to do. She, and I suggested a flea trap. She said, well, she would try it. I had a flea trap, and I loaned it to her. She said, that's so effective. She says, I'm going to buy more flea traps. And I had bought them and put them in my house, and they would catch a flea, and I didn't think they worked. She put them in her house, and eventually she became flea, the house became flea-free because the traps are very, very effective. So that's another approach you can do if you have a lot of fleas in your house. Interesting advice. Yeah, important. That question, you mentioned cats. Uh, What is your opinion on declawing an indoor cat? Is that positive or negative effect on the cat? Well, my experience with uh, declawing cats, uh, first let me back up. There are some states that have passed laws where you cannot declaw. Yes. yes. Um, whether that's right or wrong, I have an opinion. <laughs> and I've done, in my career, at one time, I was doing five every day, and it doesn't even slow them down. So this, all this hype about how severe it is is a bunch of baloney. If it's done correctly, and what I have seen that uh, where the problem comes is it somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, a non-veterinarian, declaws the cat, and it turns into a real mess. Mm. If it's done properly, and the other thing is age. I, I have done them, you know, when puppies, they, they'll take dock the tails and, and do declaws and that kind of thing when they're real young. Yes. It's a puppy. And I've done that with cats, and it didn't even slow them down. They take them home. My wife said, gosh, didn't even slow them down. They're they're normal. So I I think that people think they're doing good by eliminating these things. But if it's done properly by a a professional, it's not a problem that I can – I've done hundreds, maybe thousands of them in my career. I haven't done any in the last few years because we're strictly – uh, spay and neuter clinic, and that's all we do, full stop. But uh, in back in the early days of my career, I did five every day of the week. That's except amazing. Except for Saturday and Sunday. Amazing. And so I have, have had a lot of experience with it. And I, I, like I said, if, if somebody does it and don't know what they're doing, it really turns into a mess. So, you know, that's my side of the story, and you can ask somebody else, and you'll get a completely different answer. I'm sure you would. I uh, personally had a pet that we declawed, and my wife had guilt for a number of years. Another story. Sure. Uh, every cat we've ever owned, we we have had the front feet declawed. And people say that 
and the animal can't climb trees or bite or that kind of thing. Our cat was outside. Four dogs decided it was time to take out the cat. And that cat that we had ran up this tree so fast. The problem was it just kept on going. It got to the top, and there was nothing to hold on to, and it come falling down. And I saw what was going on, opened up the front door, and she, she ran in. The, so all this baloney about they can't do this, they can't do that, that's all it is. It's just baloney. Uh, I, I don't see any, any problem at all with front claw declawing. That's my personal opinion. You can ask somebody else, and somebody else will say, oh, I was just something terrible and full of crap and all kinds of things. But that's, that's, you know, their opinion. That's experience, and, and I appreciate your opinion on that. Is there a, what, how would you introduce this book to somebody? Um, this book is to help people who have pets that have uh, common everyday problems that they can treat at home. Now, uh, this is not a novel, and, and so almost every page has a different subject. There's 150 different subjects in this book, and um, so uh, it is a, a perfect reference book for people who own pets, or they have friends who own pets, and they wonder what kind of a gift they can get them, or they're worried about some Christmas gift or something like that. I think that's it's an ideal thing for people who have pets who are going to get pets, and, and I've Having worked in a shelter, I find people will adopt animals, and they know absolutely nothing about a pet. And it just kind of blows your mind. And, guys, these people have children, too, you know. Right. And, and so it's a, it's a, I think it's, it's a, 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 a handbook that is, is valuable to people who have pets. And one of the things about compounds or dosing animals is that um, you have to calculate the dose. But in this particular book, there's charts on top of charts with the dose. All you have to know is the weight of the animal. Look up the weight of the animal, look to the right, and it'll have the dose of that particular drug, and you don't have to calculate anything. I, I've tried to make this super simple and make it so that uh, a baboon could use, a, or hopefully a baboon could use the book to treat their pet, you know. I, that, that was my goal. Whether I achieved that or not, I, that's what I was trying to do. Well, there's hope for me then. Thank you. <laughs> any challenges Any challenges in putting your book together? I think my challenge for this book, because, uh, you know, I use professional language every day, and it's difficult to sit down and write something and put it into lay terms so that, a lay person can read the book and understand what's being said. Let me give you an example. If I say to you, Jay, my left eye medial canthus is bothering me, did I communicate with you? Yes, I'd say I'm sorry to hear that. But you I don't know what you're yeah, talking about. Did I communicate? Did <laughs> I, do you know what the problem is? I haven't a clue. I know. That's, that's what I'm after. But if I say, Jay, the corner of my eye next to my nose is bothering me. Would you understand that? Yes, yes. You see, that's what I try to do in the book. Make it so that you could understand what's being said so that I don't use terms that when you read it, you think, what the heck is that? You know? And that was the problem that I had in trying to put this book together to try to talk in lay terms so that it's understandable by the person who's reading it, because I am aiming the book 
at the lay population, not the profession of veterinary medicine, but people like you. I think you've done a beautiful job. The title of the book, again, is The Truth About Dog and Cat Treatments and Anomalies, and our author, Robert L. Ridgway, DVM. Dr. Ridgway, where can we get copies of your book? Uh, You can go to Amazon.com, and you can put in my name, and they'll all pop up. Or you can put in the, the title of the book, and all the books that I have written will pop up, and you can select what you want. It's just pretty simple. Very good. And the correct spelling of your last name is R-I-D-G-W-A-Y. There's no E in there. So it's Robert L. Ridgway without the E. Thank you for joining yeah. me today. That E is my cross to bear. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, people will find you if they uh, are wanting to know about dogs and cats and the truth about them. So look Dr. Ridgway up online, Robert L. Ridgway without the E. And you'll find not only this book, but the other books that he has written. Thank you for joining me today, sir. My my pleasure. I'm glad I could be here. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.